Hi, I'm Emma Fryer and I run the data centre programme here at Tech UK. We provide a collective voice for UK data centre operators, primarily in matters of policy, compliance and reputation. Sometimes I say that puts me in a hard place, between a rock and a hard place rather, between uh, government and industry. Um, but it's been a very interesting ride. Over the last 18 months in particular, people have really started to realise how much we depend on data centres as a lot of activity moved online. Meanwhile, our operators and developers have had to balance an upsurge in demand while working under really strict restrictions to control the spread of infection. So quite a challenging environment. And I know people have heard an awful lot from me over the last year, but much less from individual operators who are actually dealing with this at first hand. So I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Matt Pullen today. Matt is Executive Vice President and Managing Director Europe for Cyrus One. What I wonder is perhaps we could start, Matt, could you give us sort of the vital statistics on, on Cyrus One and maybe a bit of a backstory? Sure. So um, Cyrus One is the third largest US publicly quoted data centre REIT. So that's a bit of a mouthful REIT uh, standing for Real Estate Investment Trust. Cyrus, until 2018, was largely US focused with approximately 45 data centres across the US with a balance of enterprise and hyperscale. And in 2018, Cyrus One purchased Zenium Technology Partners, which was a business that I was associated with, with, um, with starting back in 2013. And the reason Cyrus did that was to um, really latch on to the increased rate of growth that the industry is expecting to see in Europe and Asia versus the US over the next three to five years. Wow. So, yes, latching on to the, the growth. Um, from my perspective, we've seen things change incredibly fast in the last 10 years in the data centre sector. And, and, you know, you said Xenium was set up, I think, was it 2013? And already now part of Cyrus One. So things are changing incredibly quickly. We've seen this very, very buoyant growth and then a trend towards fewer, much larger developments. And we've also witnessed this very strong M&A activity. And obviously Cyrus One has been absolutely at the forefront of both those trends. So you're experiencing all that at first hand. So in general terms, I know you mentioned the European and Asian markets catching up now with the US. How does that, particularly the European market, how does that look to you at the moment? We've got a long way to go. So I guess a few things I'll throw out there. And since we were acquired by Cyrus One, we've grown the portfolio threefold in three years, which is a fair demonstration of just how incredible the growth has been in the sector. And as you said, you know, really fueled by the, the pandemic. I think, again, putting things into perspective, Europe versus the US, uh, the European colo market beginning of the year was probably something in the order of 2,800 megawatts. And the US colo market by equivalent is about twice the size, 5,400 megawatts. Um, yet the demand drivers are the same. And if you consider the GDP of the US and Europe is broadly the same, you know, touching something like 19 trillion US dollars on both sides of the pond, you, you can see why there's an expectation that Europe will grow extremely rapidly. And indeed, just other, other things, you saw a 50% increase in headline signings from the hyperscalers between 2019 and 2020. Um, and that just sort of topped off at 15% annual growth rate in the Kodo market over the previous five years in Europe. So pretty, pretty astonishing stats. 
I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Emma, because I think there was an awful lot of questions in your um, questioning there, um, <laughs> particularly if you wanted to go to, you know, the M&A side of things and, and your view of, or, you know, your view to my view of what we're seeing in terms of some of the trading multiples that we've seen even in the last few weeks. Um, but I'll, I'll put it back to you to question me as to what you want okay. to Okay, yes. I mean, I'm, I am very interested in, firstly, the drivers behind all this growth. So, you know, you mentioned the hyperscalers, you mentioned the need to catch up, you mentioned the pandemic. I think there's also the, the migration of activity from sort of on-premise and enterprise, where that's all going to go digitalization of government services so there's a, a number of demand drivers at the moment what i'm hearing from the sector is that the biggest driver at the moment for sort of expansion of capacity is, is hyperscaler is that is that what you're you're seeing and do you think that's a short-term trend or do you think we, we've really got a lot of catching up to do in the in the medium term too no it's it you're absolutely right and it's all down to cloud adoption by by enterprise which has really only just started to gather momentum on a, on a global basis and, and also on a European basis. So if you think that up until relatively recently, maybe 10% of enterprise IT spend was on cloud, and, you know, that's now moving towards 20% and predicted to move towards 30% within the next few years. And it's that, it's that exponential growth that is driving hyperscale demand. I think the, the, the issue there is you know, where, where are we seeing that demand? Is it consistent across the region? Um, and the answer to that is it is moving across the region and that's demonstrated by um, the hyperscalers opening what they call new regions, a slightly confusing term, but a region is where a hyperscaler starts to serve a country from within a country, which is signaling that there is significant demand from within that country. And as soon as they open a region, the, the growth in terms of acquired capacity in that country, you, you see it, you see it immediately and in a, in a very sustained way. So you've got different countries from a hyperscale point of view growing at different rates. You've got the likes of London and Frankfurt, uh, where you, you logically think that um, the outsourcing to the cloud would be earlier and faster, and sure enough, it was. And, and those, um, those countries from a hyperscale point of view adding capacity at a phenomenal rate every year. But then you've got new regions opening and you're seeing initial deployments that are fundamentally changing the landscape of the existing colo market. And once those deployments are made, then you see growth, but the growth just starts to build. So the main point I'm trying to make is that people have viewed the European data centre markets focused on a horrible term of flat D, I really don't like that, which is Frankfurt, London, Amsterdam, Paris, and Dublin. But the reality is that, you know, we should be looking beyond those to where the new regions are and how those new regions are growing and contributing to the overall growth of the European data centre market. That's really interesting to me. And in terms of, by regions, is that the same as the term we hear, sort of availability zones? Because um, I've heard that term used. Is that sort of interchangeable? No, so a region is when, so a region is basically a country. Availability zones are the, um, the consolidated areas within a region. And normally what you would see is that a hyperscaler would start by deploying three availability zones within each region because um, the availability zones effectively back up each other. It's back to the, if you remember the enterprise 
the enterprise data center days when it was all about triangulation, um, where a, a core group would have three data centers with a bit of you know, a bit of compute storage DR in each one of three uh, three data centers, all of which would back each other up. So same theory. So availability zones are areas within regions. The other thing I just wanted to um, talk about a little bit because it's something that interests me, and I'm going slightly off piece here, but just in terms of the characterizations of the different markets, even within, as you hate to call it, flat D, when we look at the UK, we don't see, or we're beginning to see, but only just the, the, the idea of hyperscalers um, developing their own sort of campus-based um, facilities. Generally, they've, they've taken space in third parties, and that contrasts a lot to, say, the Irish market, which where, where the way they've gone about it is very different. Do you think there's specific reasons for, for that and, and, and why that, that's so different in diff, different countries? Yeah, totally. Um, it, it gets to quite a, an interesting point in terms of forecasting, but the hyperscalers have a few what they term mega clusters around Europe, which is where they they have a significantly concentrated presence because you know you can drive such efficiencies, particularly operating costs, from, from having large concentration. But the thing is that from a data center point of view, you've got to be careful because a lot of the compute side needs very, very, very low latency to serve the market that you're addressing. And therefore the physical location of the data centers has to be urban and suburban as it relates to serving a particular market like London, for example. But there are lots of things that don't require the ultra low latency or low latency, which means that you can put them elsewhere. If you think about Google's search engine, for example, that doesn't need to be providing ultra low latency you know you don't mind if if, if a page is slow to refresh or a search result comes back in a slightly delayed way so just using those examples you can see that there is an opportunity to, to cluster now what geographic locations offer the you know the right dynamics to cluster is pretty evident which is you know is there is there a good taxation environment and is there labor is there ultimately still good connectivity? Even, even if it's not low latency, there still needs to be you know, good connectivity. Is there cheap and abundant power? You know, you go on and on and on. But that's that's why you, with logic, you could see why Dublin's so influential, why the north of the Nordics is pretty influential, particularly northern Sweden. And for, for a time, you know, the Netherlands has been quite influential as well. But I think... I think some of those dynamics are shifting as, as individual government attitudes towards data centres or the capability of a national infrastructure changes and its ability to sustain growth. So I wouldn't necessarily say that the traditional locations that provided mega cluster support will be the only ones that will sustain pretty high concentration of data centres that isn't necessarily serving the capital market. I like the fact that it's, you know, we've seen it's very dynamic. It's very fast. But, you know, if you look at the, the growth in the Irish data center market over the last 10 years, that's been absolutely incredible. Um, so that's just a really interesting example. And actually, that's people are often more aware of that. I think when I talk to policymakers, they're much less aware of the UK market because it's been more co-location. So, so the, the people who run those facilities are not household names in the same way that, you know, Google and Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft are. That's been quite made it made it a very different discussion for me here in the UK. 
I think the interesting point there is just hit the nail on the head. I mean, the, the Irish data centre market, if you combine hyperscale self-build and colos, is roughly 800 megawatts. London's just under 800 megawatts. So they are, you could argue they're just the same size. It's just those those famous names, as you mentioned, that are just hidden behind the colo operators. But importantly, the, the bulk of what is going on within the co-location facilities from a hyperscale point of view is serving the London market as opposed to in Ireland where it's serving, you know, serving Europe as a whole in, in, in vast proportion because the GDP of Dublin versus London is, you know, they're completely, completely different. Absolutely, yeah. So it's about essentially serving centres of population and that's what we're looking at in terms of these um, regional expansions. So, just back on the sort of more specific expansion and focusing back on Cyrus One, I'm just interested to know whether you, you can say something about your own, you know, your own strategy for expanding capacity within Europe, whether you're, you know, which, whether you're looking tier one, tier two, both, how focused you are on the traditional metro markets and, and where else you're planning to add capacity. If you're, if you're able to tell me, I'd be really interested. Yeah, no, sure, sure. We, you know, we had our earnings call recently, which really echoed what we talked to in our investor day back in June. So <clears throat> I mentioned that the European business has grown threefold over the last three years. We've now got effectively 12 operational data centers in, in the flat D markets, all of them. And I think I, I mentioned earlier a really important point, which is that you start to, at scale, see some really nice um, operational cost efficiency coming through. And if you think about that together with the fact that now, the growth rates in the major markets or the well-established markets are, are still significant. Um, it's natural that we would focus our efforts there because, you know, take London, we've got sufficient, um, considerable scale with five facilities and take Frankfurt to the west where we have um, three facilities operational, you know, a fourth in development, and then we require land to the east for, for another couple of facilities. You know, our, our intent is to, to double down in those markets and really continue to build scale so that we can build you know, operational efficiency, but also to help our customers expand because you know, competition is becoming tough for land, competition is becoming tough for power, permitting cycles are increasing. So in those critical hubs, um, we, we're trying to get ahead of, of our customers in terms of anticipating their needs and being able to give them the runway to growth. In, in new markets, it, it, it's pretty straightforward from my point of view, and you'll see that we announced publicly our move into Madrid, where we acquired just, just around five acres for a facility that could provide 21 megawatts total, about 18 megawatts of cellular IT capacity. And Madrid demonstrated the ideal dynamics for us, which talks to our strategy and timing in that what we're looking at is good GDP. So Spain's got the sixth largest GDP in, in, in Europe at about 1.2 trillion. I mean, putting that into perspective, when, when you aggregate the Nord, four Nordic countries, you know, their total GDP is only 1.5 trillion when you put them together. So Spain was always on our radar because of the scale of GDP. It was opened as a region over the last couple of years by the major hyperscalers. And the, the interesting thing was the scale of the colo market was tiny and not reflective of GDP because 
during the enterprise boom, and this is a really important point, the Spanish enterprise companies really were averse to outsourcing. It's quite traditional at that point in Southern Europe, and they'd rather build their own data centers than commit capacity to colo providers. But we've seen the digital economy um, transcend traditional barriers to outsourcing. And so what's happened is the growth in the Madrid market has been phenomenal, just mainly because it was so small up until recently. So there's a 40 megawatt market, the hyperscalers have deployed, and you know, between a couple of hyperscalers last year, there was probably 30 megawatts of headline signings. And so you, you're seeing just this fundamental impact on markets. Another dynamic is that there isn't a lot of competition in the market. And for us, just from a timing point of view, we waited to see where the availability zones were going to be deployed before striking, because we took the view that you know, we weren't too late at all by entering the market in, say, the second phase of rollouts by the hyperscalers. So you know, we've acquired land, we've got to get our permitting, and we've got to you know, put our capacity you know, into, into service, and we think that will coincide nicely with sustained growth in the market. And, and we, we, we look at all the new markets um, in that way. So look at GDP, look at where regions are being opened and look at competition and when we think our timing will be right. So it's very strategic then in that, in that, um, in that sense. But yeah, so actually that what you've just talked about just flagged a, a nice segue into the next thing I want to discuss, which is, which is energy and sustainability and certainly this move to outsourcing, which has been much more apparent elsewhere. But one of the things, one of the paradoxes that I'm constantly having to juggle with is this, we have very visible growth in this specific types of data center at the moment in these very strategic locations. And that often leads to a misconception, for instance, that we're, there's also parallel growth in sort of on-premise and enterprise, when in fact the opposite is true. Um, and actually uh, enterprise are divesting on the whole their data center assets. Um, and also there's a, a, this, this, this trend towards outsourcing, moving everything to cloud um, and consolidating that sort of distributed IT. And of course, while our facilities are large and, and obviously very energy intensive, that act of consolidating IT functions from as a distributed model massively improves both efficiency and transparency. And we've got, you know, there are some very, very compelling figures about that. And it's happening gradually, but it's very invisible. And it tends to move the energy from the sort of invisible spectrum where it's been hidden in, in office premises onto the much more visible spectrum. And although uh, the migration of this is, is probably one of the reasons why when you look at figures from the International Energy Agency and others, the overall center power consumption line is remarkably flat. I mean, it's, it's not quite flat, but it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's moving incrementally upwards. Whereas from, you know, all the news and, and coverage you'd expect there to be a much a much faster increase in, in overall power consumption for data centers but we've got this headroom from this, this very very relatively inefficient distributed IT which is gradually being eroded away by this migration however you know we have to keep a really really close eye on on the way our sector consumes energy I'm incredibly mindful of that both in terms of optimizing efficiency and obviously also in terms of renewables procurement so and I know you know um, I've heard great things about um, your moving to renewables procurement, but I'd be really interested to hear just a bit more detail about what you're doing in terms of, of energy stewardship and, and renewables. I, I thoroughly agree with what you said leading up to the question. In, in my former life, we were always tracking 
the proportion of, of office space that was given over to data centers. And, you know, at, at probably in the mid 2000s, it was running about seven and a half percent of office stock was, was occupied by data centers. And if you take the, the enterprise, sort of legacy enterprise data center um, landscape as a whole, you, you're absolutely right. There was an awful lot of money put into data centers with, with a focus on resilience that led to significant inefficiency. And so the consolidation of those data centers into the big efficient data centers, I, I completely agree, is, is a move that people don't really understand has, has helped significantly in terms of overall power draw. And the point is as well, is that the hyperscalers, they, they properly utilize the assets we create. You know, gone are the days when an enterprise customer would use maybe 30 to 40% of capacity purchased in a colo facility, which in itself drives incredible inefficiency. And today, you know, you're seeing hyperscalers utilizing 75, 80%, sometimes more of, of capacity purchased, again, drive, driving efficiency. So yeah, you and I are probably both frustrated about you know, the view that this sudden growth in data centers is um, you know, a real issue as far as the planet is concerned. But I think you know, what we've seen in, in you know, the news over the last few days is that no, nobody can deny that the planet needs some help and that its distress has been caused by man. So you know, what are we doing as a company? We've come out and said we're going to be climate neutral by 2040. Uh, importantly, through our association with um, EU DCA, we've obviously signed up to the Climate Neutral Data Center Pact, along with 34 other operators and 20 plus trade associations, which obviously Tech UK are part of, and, and the other cloud operator associations. And so we're actively involved in, you know, really helping to drive the agenda of the Climate Neutral Data Centre Pact, which is to, to try and ensure that data centres in Europe are climate neutral by 2030. Brussels effectively takes note and helps the industry achieve that, um, with one big point being you know, our desire to see self-regulation so that we don't have regulations imposed that make it you know, very, very difficult and very, very expensive to get there. But you know, it's such a broad topic, but I think, I think the point being is that either through helping the industry or helping ourselves, you know, we're focused on, on the key things that, that you've mentioned, which of course are all about improved efficiency, um, whether it be through technology and the data centers, by ensuring that we move away from carbon fuels to renewable energy. Um, and we, we have gone 100% renewable in Europe just before the summer, which was great. Obviously looking at water conservation, which really is probably the biggest issue alongside the um, renewable energy, looking at the circular economy to ensure that you know, things are being recycled. And of course, you know, looking at heat reuse um, because there's, there's a great opportunity there to, um, to use the surplus heat to, to support um, industries and communities. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, and you were along with us, I think, a founder signatory, and now you've been appointed to the board of directors. And I mentioned you, yeah, rather you, you mentioned that you were looking forward to being able to steer, help steer that activity. I've been really impressed with the number of signatories to it, the commitment demonstrated by the industry. I see it as something that will generally raise a level of ambition for the sector overall. Um, how universal do you think that will be? Do you think it will actually um, manage to 
uh, stretch its influence outside Europe? Because I'm, I'm already seeing interest from elsewhere. Just interested in your thoughts on that. I, I do. I'm, I'm slightly biased here because my visibility is mainly the US and Europe, but you know, the, the US are you know, trying extremely hard to, to follow the same, same agenda, you know, and we are as a company. And we've just gone zero water in, in our Phoenix data centre, for example. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think so. Because, and what we've been seeing, again, back to the reference to the news over the last you know, few days and weeks, is raising awareness across the globe. So, no, I'm, I'm hoping it does. But also, the, the, this industry is a global industry. You, you look at us, you know, we're in the US, we're in Europe, we have a stated ambition to be in Asia. And, you know, we're not going to adopt different approaches in different regions. We're going to try and take wherever we can a global approach, because, again, that, that improves efficiency in terms of deploying against that approach. So I, I think it will. I think the multinationals have a really important role to play in, in exactly that, in, in standardising those best practices more broadly. I'm all thinking about which of the challenges, uh, which of the, the, the criteria, the commitments of the pact are going to be the most challenging for operators. So we've got uh, energy efficiency and, and, and the definition of a new metric and one metric to rule them all or whatever it will be. That's been very tricky in the past trying to get a meaningful metric. Then we've got renewable power. We've got water use, which I couldn't agree more. That's rising very, very fast on the agenda. Then we've got circular economy and heat reuse, where I think that's going to be to some extent country dependent while, while we work out how to get the infrastructure in place. Um, but which do you think is, is, is likely to be the most challenging of those commitments for, for, for us to meet, maybe particularly um, smaller operators, perhaps at legacy sites? Oh, my gosh, it's a broad, such a broad <laughs> topic. But I think the, the important point to stress, and you're well aware of this, is you know, part of the role of the, well, of the EUDCA, of, of all the trade associations and the pact, is to really make sure that investment euros that are available are properly directed towards solving for issues that if they're not solved for won't allow us to get where we've got to go and that those investment euros have got to be available not just to big companies but also the, the SMEs. I personally think you know, one of the biggest challenges is going to be the move away from carbon fuels to renewable energy because you know, it's such an ambitious target to get to 75% for the industry by 2025 and then 100% by 2030. It's only really achievable if Brussels, but also governments of each nation really focus on investing into infrastructure that the data centre industry can plug into to, to effectively you know, procure that green energy. So that's investment. There's taxonomy issues as well that, that need to be looked at to help at a, at a country level. And then when we get into water usage, again, there's such a misalignment of basically policies within each country. So we've got to see a better alignment in terms of how the industry can look to, to basically reuse water and, and really be incentivized to drive down water usage. So sorry, that's, I haven't been really specific, but I, I think I see, I see any energy efficiency and, and water usage as two really big issues that governments have got to help with. I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I, I struggle quite often with, with ambitious policy, not with the level of ambition, because actually the, the climate neutral data center fact is at a high level of ambition. 
it's not the level of ambition, it's that we usually disagree on how we reach the point. So we like sort of a bit more freedom in, in how to achieve the objective, because otherwise you tend to find that you get different measures implemented differently in different countries. Even within the UK, we have contradictions between different policy measures, which makes it very complicated. We spend a lot of money on the kind of compliance exercise, which takes away resource from actually doing the right thing, we tend to find. So those are really frustrating. And that's why I, I really welcome a self-regulatory regime. What I am interested, though, in exploring a bit is, is that what I think the Climate Neutral Data Centre Pact has already done is it has, has created a totally different level of policy dialogue between ourselves and the, the Commission, policymakers in the Commission. And I really welcome that. It just, it's a, it's a much more, you know, they, they fully understand the contribution that the intelligent use of technology can do in terms of, of dematerialization, right across from, you know, teleworking and, and, and autonomous vehicles to, you know, climate change monitoring and, you know, very, very large uh, data processing exercises to, to monitor and, and actually be able to have this conversation. But I am seeing that. So I'm quite optimistic about the fact that we're now having much more grown up dialogue about how we how we collectively um, tackle those things. I mean, have do you do you, do you, do you see that as well? Do you think it'll be more open and productive or do you think there's a lot of challenges in, in continuing that? Because the, the, the dialogue is also very can be very politicised and it varies from country to country. I guess I've been around the industry for since the mid 90s. You know, what's been frustrating in the majority of that time is how poorly understood data centres have been, particularly at a government level. Not only has the dialogue been incredibly healthy in recent times, but it's against the backdrop that, you know, Brussels and country governments are so far advanced in terms of their understanding of data centres, important on the economies, but also the challenges that operators have in terms of, you know, meeting sustainability goals, et cetera. So, no, I, I, I think it's great. And I also think it helps to blunt the, you know, you, you refer to the double-edged sword, and I think that's where you were going. It's like, well, you have the dialogue, great. They better understand you, but you, the worry is that they'll use that better understanding to somehow give, you know, introduce and legislation that will slow the industry down or really burden the industry. And, you know, the one area where I've seen that is, you know, in the, this, this issue that you and I, Emma, have talked about a lot, and that the pandemic led to us getting some really good air cover from, from governments. But also it's, it's put back on the agenda the, the notion of critical national infrastructure. And, you know, where, where I've seen the biggest problems of late was, for example, in, in Germany, when data centres over five megawatts were, were designated critical national infrastructure. And that designation occurred when really the government departments didn't fully understand data centres. So when, when it came to their ability to veto transactions that involved, and, and regional global transactions that involved data centres in Germany and the transfer of, a, of the whole ownership or portion, and you saw real issues in terms of the German government slowing down the industry. And, you know, it took nine months for the German government to approve the sale of Xenium to Cyrus One, for example. And so I just, I, I do believe there's going to be challenges, but on balance, the, the, the improved dialogue and the improved awareness um, is, is reaping massive benefits. And yeah, fine, there'll be some bumps along the road, but they always are.
I see it being very nice to have a, a, a home within government, which the sector's never had before. So we have this official team that was uh, set up at very short notice. They're incredibly responsive. You know, last year when we needed key worker status, they got it, I think, in three, four hours for us. Um, quarantine exemption, protection for construction sites, which we didn't, in the end, need because they didn't close that element down, but we had it if needed. So that was, yeah hugely useful important and, and and yes we have some useful discussions i think we still have this very disconnected dialogue across other parts of government so we're still dealing with bays on certain things we're doing and again my conversations generally start with having to explain what a data center is and so so yes it is it is um hugely frustrating because of course quite often people come from a uh, a pejorative perspective. I've heard data centers using lots of energy, and why do we need them here? And and then you have to start the whole thing at the beginning about you know actually absolutely critical to our you know a future economic viability as a country to have a, a sufficient digital infrastructure. You know we need a state of the art, world class digital infrastructure. If we well, you might you know compete in, in digital markets. So the scrutiny side, and I'm thinking. I know you talked about that we actually are in the throes of we've just now got a new um, national security and investment act which has posed some challenges to the industry because we have been designated data centers as one of the critical sectors covered within the act where we will have to notify some transaction um, and i think the proof will be in the pudding there and as you say i think there'll be some bumps on the way at the moment it's very very hard to see how that will in practice impact us whether it will change the 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 appetite sort of investor appetite at the moment I've, I've seen very very strong investor appetite across the sector so i don't know whether it will have an impact on narrowing that field i don't know if you have any thoughts on that um, but in terms of, of of practical they have actually set a a time deadline on how long they're allowed to delay transactions for do you think that'll be helpful yeah i, I, I do and I, I don't think it'll stop investment in the sector it'll cause some frustrations but no I, I don't think ultimately it will stop it again because of the, the increased awareness of and importantly the increased awareness about different types of data centers and the, the role of the owners of those data centers in relation to whatever concerns there are from a national security point of view so no I, I think as the more the more dialogue we have and the more they understand the, the supply chain the more liquidity that will remain within the industry, even in the face of some of this legislation. I would agree with that. And I think the what would also help from a, and this is, you know, from a policy point of view, from my angle, I think it would be actually probably quite useful for wider recognition of the criticality of the sector. And then I think that would probably help my discussions elsewhere in government particularly those where there's a low awareness of just the kind of criticality of the operations, the complexity of operations, you know, just the, the incredible, well, complexity of the infrastructure that we're dealing with, where really you've got four or five different industries coming together within one roof and multiple technologies. And, and, and I know that we all struggle with, with, with uh, things like permitting, because actually applying some of those rules in these very complex environments, you know, it's not so you can cone an air of a data center off while you refit something <laughs> you know it's like someone described it as trying to do something significant in the data center with a significant intervention it's a bit like changing the engines in a jumbo while it's in flight and that's you know those are the kind of things i think people really don't understand some of my discussions with other parts of government outside 
DCMS have have you know people have suggested well if you want to make the data center more efficient why don't you just move everything into into one hall and then later move it back again <laughs> so we've had some you can imagine some quite entertaining discussions on that where we've had to go back to basics so I do think it's I think it's a swings and roundabout thing I think there'll be certain things you know I think certain things will will be in our favour and certain things will be an absolute pain so I think I better round up now I think we're nearly out of time. I think I'm feeling quite optimistic about the sector. I do think we've got a job to do in terms of public awareness. Is that something you think we need to do and can we do it? Is it an individual thing or a collective thing? Uh, I think it's both. I, I, I think it's individual and collective. And to your point, it's all about increasing awareness, both, both as it relates to public sentiment and also as it relates to, to government support. So we have a job to do. Anyway, I'm going to end on a happy note. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been great talking to you. Um, I'm going to wrap up now, but I think a sector that can work together is a positive thing. And I think we'll look optimistically ahead at working towards those common goals. Thanks very much indeed, great. Matt. Thanks, Emma. Always a pleasure.